had one of the best interviews I've had in this calendar year with a really amazing musician and somebody who's able to articulate as best he can how the music was made. Maine Smith, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Glad to be here. Out of curiosity, how old is your daughter? I have two daughters. They're 17 and uh, 11. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're good people. You know, Maine, uh, I, I wanted to ask you if you remember the first time you played with a with a trap drummer, a drum kit. Um, let's see. I think it was probably... Oh, I remember. Uh, <laughs> this was at a point in the late 60s when... Um, um, well, let, let, let me start. Go ahead, man. Yeah, do your thing. When I, I, uh, I had moved to Los Angeles in order to start, um, my academic, continue my academic studies working with Professor D.K. Logos, but, um, I started meeting people who uh, who were interested in um, the same kind of music or styles of music that I was, and uh, in the during the course of I was invited to participate in the um, the UCLA Folk Festival, no, the San Diego Folk Festival, wow, nineteen. Wow. Wow. And while I was there, I met, uh, happened to meet uh, a, a number of people who turned out to be very important in my life. Uh, the main one was uh, Mitch Greenhill, who uh, we discovered lived just a few blocks away from where I was living near the beach in Venice, California. <laughs> I was going to say that was the that was the nexus of. <laughs> of you and Mitch. That was, but uh, at the same time, I was, uh, I hung, started hanging out at the Ashgrove uh, Folk Music Nightclub in um, West Hollywood. And uh, I, um, I was actually hired to be uh, what I, thought of it as an art, the artist strangler. I, I, my responsibility was to, um, yeah, we took, no, no, we, we, we vetted this very hard. You were not, you sold strings and instruments. I'm curious about, right. <clears throat> about the trap drummer. Well, um, it's all connected. Um, I've, let, let me let me put it this way. I I, I got uh, connected with a guy named Mark Spolstra, and um, absolutely, uh, he, he was uh, he had just recorded a, an album for Capitol Records and had had begun to tour up and down the coast to promote the album, and he uh, and. Uh, uh, Mitch 
a guy named Mitch Greenhill had uh, got it, ended up being called in to kind of take control um, and be a coordinator with the musicians who were recording with Mark. And then uh, when Mark um, was, uh, when a tour was being arranged for Mark's bolster up and down the coast to, to promote the album, Mitch took on the role of accompanying him and they decided they could use some additional help. And um, Mitch and I and had encountered each other at the San Diego Folk Festival in 1968. He was living just a few blocks away from me. And I was invited to uh, collaborate with him in backing up Mark's bolster. So um, there was a period when we were performing locally in Southern California at, uh, at, at a hair and at a club called the heritage in San Diego wow. and our, uh, mission beach actually, which is like a suburb of San Diego. And, uh, and then we began to branch out, um, uh, and played some other venues in Southern California and then to tour a little bit up and down the coast. And um, I think the very first time that we uh, had a drummer, we used, uh, we were playing acoustically. I was playing dobro almost exclusively, Mm. and Mitch was playing the lead guitar and backup guitar, and Mark was a very strong rhythm guitar uh, player on the 12 string guitar. So based on Mark's rhythm guitar playing and Mitch's lead guitar and my dobro, we developed a pretty good sound and we had a nice vocal trio where we ended up kind of Mitch and me adding um, two voices to Mark's full strip. And we hired a guy named, uh, who's, who is known locally as Pookie. <laughs> um, his real name was uh, Tom Russell, I believe, who uh, had had found a way to take a small-sized garbage can that um, he turned upside down and, and hooked onto uh, the kind of a stand that they used for tom-toms on a, on a full drum set. And he could stand up and play that thing with brushes or, um, you know, the kind of brushes that a, a, a trap drummer uh, sure. normally uses. And then uh, sometimes a stick and, and a, a small cymbal or two. And uh, we actually, we had the uh, Mark's bolster with Mitch Greenhill and Main Smith and and Pookie on the drums had made a nice compact unit that, that uh, had a, a good solid acoustic sound, but uh, kind of could bleed over into the folk rock kind of a trip. 
And I remember um, the first time I played for a really big crowd was at the Sky River Rock Festival, Sky River in northern, up near Tacoma. Mm. Washington, I think, was was the gig. And uh, we played for, I don't know, I think there were like 100,000 people there. It was a, it was a big jump for me into that um, l- large venue kind of a scene. Um, they were spread out on a big pat in a pasture. It was actually a farmer's field, uh, but it was a it was it was a big scene for us. And uh, so there we were. We were uh, we went on after. Um, or maybe it was just before um, the Flying Burrito Brothers. <laughs> we we had a kind of a, a kinship, a relationship with them, where wow. we were, in terms of the music we were playing, we were we were country, but we were also kind of rock and folk at the same time. Mitch and I added our two voices to Mark's on the chorus of a bunch of things, and. Uh, uh, we all kind of got used to thinking of ourselves as being folk rock sort of a thing. The birds were just coming into um, existence and or gaining recognition, and it was just we were part of a a burgeoning thing, the beginning of the the, the folk rock scene, and. Um, getting opportunities to play for larger and larger crowds on some occasions. Were you, um, were you, were you like, uh, skeptical of, I mean, you weren't, you didn't plug, you weren't plugged in. So were you very skeptical of like the rock and roll that was coming out? Were you somebody that was ambivalent about, um, you know, I mean, it's cool to have brushes on a garbage can, but you didn't have a cat who was, playing melodically on the kit. I wonder about, all you guys had such good inner time feel that I wonder about the first time that you brought a drummer in that you were like comfortable enough to let them express their own individual voice. Well, boy, that's kind of hard to say. Maybe it never happened. I don't know. Things kind of just gradually developed. Right. Um, There were some situations where Pookie could could play a small set, right. you know, with like one bass drum, hi hat, and Tom, mm-hmm. and and uh, um, one splash cymbal, and um, um, occasionally it would it would get a little bit heavier, but uh, you know the lines of demarcation were becoming more and more blurred. <laughs> and, I know, uh, I know. You know, when we when we played um, the Sky River Rock Festival with uh, on stage uh, right before or right after the Flying Burrito Brothers, there were just uh, Mitch and me and Mark and Pookie gathered around several microphones on the stage, but we were looking at a crowd of a hundred thousand people with them naked ladies dancing down right in front of the stage a lot of a lot of people yeah a lot of people tripping out on acid yeah uh yeah and uh it was um 
you know, this was a this was a, a different sort of a gig than I had ever experienced <laughs> right. from any distance. <laughs> yeah. But um, you know, it, I was and I was um, more experienced uh, uh, in terms of or more knowledgeable in terms of the folk music scene and more musically diverse or versatile than most of the the young musicians who were um, already pretty strong into the uh, into the rock orientation, but I didn't have much much trouble getting involved with the with the music. Right. I was still playing the dobro, but I I got had a, a mic embedded in the top of the dobro so that I could just plug in by means of a of a uh, a jack to accept an AC plug and I mean not AC but a a, a microphone plug and a microphone built into the top of the uh, kind of hidden under the top of the dobro. So you get some you get some nice yeah. and then somewhere along the line somebody actually gave me a um, an amplifier. <laughs> so I got some experience plugging into that and playing around with it. Learning how to I mean for one thing, um I couldn't make as much noise playing backup because I didn't really have a volume control that I could used very well so I had to develop a way of, of playing an instrument that uh, you know controlling the volume entirely by the way I produced the sound from the instrument and then uh, uh, somewhere along the line I uh, but I was still performing standing up and then I somewhere along the line I got a hold of a volume pedal and I could sit, play sitting down so that I could then use the volume control the way a an electric steel player uses it. It took, that was one of the major adjustments that I had to make in developing appropriate technique for playing an instrument that was electrified. Can you talk about how you cultivated that skill? Well, It's hard to, it, it wasn't an intellectual process. Right. Um, the, if you sit in a chair and you put your right foot on a, on a pedal that gets loud when you press forward and gets quieter when you pull back with your foot, you have to find a way to, uh, you can, it, uh, this allows you to, pull back and with your foot, um, with the pe your toe pointed up and your heel down, you can play much more quietly and then you press down with your toe and you get gradually more volume. And um, that was an important uh, development for me to accomplish. And that, that allowed me to make the use to use the dobro more like a uh, an electric steel guitar. Mm. And then somewhere along the line, somebody actually pretty much just 
walked into my uh, walked up to my door and said, "Here, I don't need this anymore. Maybe you could use it." Mm. And uh, and he left me a um, pedal steel guitar that was uh, about the simplest you could possibly imagine, <laughs> and it had the drawback that the four uh, tone control pedals were hanging by cables from the left-hand side of the uh, instrument. And the pedals were arranged so that I could pick one or I could play one or two of them at the same time with my left foot. And I had to spend a lot of time just gradually learning how to bring how how best to tune the instrument to suit my style i had to pretty much i never had a lesson on the steel guitar i didn't know anybody who played the electric steel guitar and i i just imitated uh, particularly the sound of um what was his name um, Tom Mooney hmm. was a buck in the buck owens band oh, wow. i was a real yeah, fan yeah. of buck owens mm, yeah down already and um, so I had an idea of what to do it, what Tom Mooney when, what Tom Mooney started with was um, basically using mostly just two pedals or three pedals in uh, combinations with each other and um, he actually I think he actually came from the area of Lubbock, Texas, uh, where um, I, I'm not sure, but in any case, this was this was the sound that um, I had well into my head. So I I was able I knew what I was aiming for mm. as I went, and um, the 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 sound the use of pedals on the steel guitar was uh, I think the first guy who recorded and had record sales on, uh, had his pedal steel recorded on uh, on uh, important records was uh, um, it was back in the early 50s and so there there was about 10 years or so of uh, what was the cat name? Uh, was his name? On that sound, and I was able to just kind of sneak into it gradually, and um, at a pace that was appropriate to myself. Did but you? Uh, um, did you? <clears throat> when did you first come across uh, the legendary uh, pedal steel cat Bill Keith? Well. At this point, I don't think Bill Keith had um, played any played with pedals. He absolutely, you're working, absolutely right. No, you're absolutely he was correct. Working on the banjo, absolutely, the banjo absolutely. That's right. That's and right. I, those people were grew out of the uh, Cambridge, Boston, Cambridge musical scene. Um, in a parallel with what was going on out here on the West Coast. And uh, 
they actually stayed over at my house when they were playing the Ash Grove. And um, um, Bill Keith brought his uh, his first pedal steel over and had set it up at my house <laughs> and stayed on my couch while he was while the the Question band was playing at the Ash Grove and uh, um, he asked me to sing for him so that he could learn how to play backup on it. Oh, thing. that is so fu- that makes my heart just glow. You yeah, know, I was going to say, because I was going to say... Yeah, we became good friends, and... Uh, yeah. No, because he, he went, uh, they played the Troubadour, <laughs> and because um, Maria Moldauer told me the story that uh, he had the pedal steel at that point, uh, he had worked it out, and Duke Ellington was in the audience and freaked out when he saw that pedal steel and the kind of harmonies, and he was backstage just marveling at it. That's quite believable. Yeah. The point is that, like, it was all happening. I just wonder about, like, did you always make, in your bands, especially after the river rock, I mean, it was going into psychedelic acid rock, and you were not somebody who was, you know, you guys weren't going to be pretending to be Cream or Mahavishnu Orchestra, but can you just talk about, um, like, ultimately how you expanded your sound sonically in sort of a hybrid acoustic electric way and never completely losing the the essence of the music that you, your first love, you know? Well, it was a gradual process, but it happened pretty fast. You know why I say that? Because like, I, because I there were like, yeah, no, they were just like, there were very, sorry, anti- there were very antiquated, as you know, very antiquated PA systems. So, like, it was really hard to generate a lot of sound out to the crowds if you were playing, in that, like, outside. Over time, the sound systems became very sophisticated. But I just wonder how you dealt with, like, the sonic expansion of music getting louder and louder, and yet you trying to adhere to... Uh, the the essence of of the roots music that you that you you know first started. Well, number one, we weren't trying to play. We weren't playing in in a lot of venues in a lot of situations where um, there was a sound crew right. and uh, and big crowds and stuff. We were mostly playing small rooms, which hardly even exist anymore. Right. Um, we were playing for the same size of crowds that we played before, typically a couple of hundred at the most. Um, nobody, we weren't that popular. We were, <laughs> we were that, you know, people didn't, many people really knew that. You know, we weren't really built into the scene that, um, that, um, the, uh, the the burrito brothers uh, were were playing for. Um, I just happened to remember them because I remember when the first time we played for a crowd that on a on a big outdoor stage happened to be at the Sky River Rock Festival up near Tacoma. Um, right. Uh, with the Flying Burrito Brothers set up to play after us. <laughs> um, 
You you would say that the circuit they were on was more of an electric music circuit. Is that the difference? You know, like where they were playing. They were an electric band. They were a, a you know they were a full size electric band, right. and they were fully familiar with that situation. And that was the first gig that we played where we were on a gig with a, with bands that had that kind of instrumentation. Mm -hmm. It was uh, it was quite an experience to go on in front of a hundred thousand people uh, on the same stage that the Flying Burrito Brothers were uh, were going to be playing. Or I don't. Yeah, I think it was going to be after us. I think we were like there were like five or six other acts on the on the bill for that particular afternoon up near Tacoma. And, uh, so af um, after after Spolstra. When did you actually, what was the impetus to move to the Bay Area? Well, I'm trying to remember. Uh, at the point where we got, where this got started, Mitch was living, it turned out. But we met, at, as I mentioned, at the 1968... Um, Folk Fest, San Diego. San Diego Folk Festival. And uh, we discovered that Mitch was just living a few doors away from me. And we also discovered that the scene that he had come up with in uh, on the uh, on the folk circuit was really very much um, very similar to what I, to how I, you know, the, the music and the kind of musical taste uh, that I had dealt with. Uh, he played with more different people. There were there were a lot more recorded and better known acts uh, on the uh, absolutely on that absolutely New York uh, Boston scene than we had out here on the on the West Coast, but or at least as I've been in touch with. But it was really essentially the same in terms of the folk music scene, like the Jim Questing. Excuse me. The Jim Claskin Jug Band um, was something that I was comfortable with and was more or less familiar with. And as you may know, I recorded. I was uh, called to play um, Dobro on uh, uh, some things that Queskin recorded. Oh my God, Jim Queskin! That's one of my favorite. As well. Yeah, it's. I, I have that album, Jim Queskin's America. It will forever be in my collection because Maine Smith is on that album. I'm just curious. I'm curious about <clears throat> that. Um, I know that Mitch wound up in the Bay Area in the late '60s. He did a couple of demos, but I'm just trying to figure out how the frontier started. Like, why did you maybe you graduated UCLA and moved up there? Well, um. I think Marsh Bolcher moved up first for some reason. I'm not sure exactly why. But Mitch moved about the same time and I came along not too much too much longer, but it was it was centered around Santa Rosa and Sebastopol. Uh uh and uh Cotati. Oh man, the, this is incredible California, north of uh, North of San Francisco. So you were outside. Yeah, you guys lived in Sonoma, right? Um, 
Mitch was living in Camp Meeker near Occidental yes. in the woods, pretty much. And he had a wife and baby at that point. Um, and um, my parents, my mother uh, was a was a uh, um, did real was into real estate stuff, and she found a place for me and my wife to move to uh, on the other side and, and to the uh, east of Santa Rosa in that general area. And uh, we ended up, um, so I was able to move up there not too long after um, Mark and Mitch moved into the area. And we, it was fairly seamless, you know, over, over the course of a year, all three of us moved up to the uh, area of Santa Rosa and, um, and so I, my, my question is actually, uh, main, like, yeah. even though you're, even though like you're completely a pro at this point, how did you sing for your supper up there? I mean, I can't see uncle Sam's being able to pay the bills. I know it was a much cheaper time, but I'm just, how did you survive? Well, uh, I'm sitting here with, and, and getting ready for this call, I pulled, <laughs> some of my stuff together. Oh, good, and, uh, good, good. I happen to have a good capabilities as a, a technical writer and editor. And uh, hmm. I was able to, I actually uh, provided part of my living by um, editing textbooks, texts, and um, stuff like that. And actually also developed the capacity to design and, uh, and create camera-ready uh, masters for um, publications of various kinds. And, I'm sorry, uh, sorry what, what, what you developed cameras, did you say? Camera-ready text, that is pages. Pages and so, can you give an example? Of, of In other words, I could I could do use computerized desktop publishing to design a publication or a newsletter. Oh man, that was so! What a forerunner on that man! And uh, wow, I'm sitting here coming through a a booklet that, that contains <laughs> a lot of publications, small publications that I designed and um, little, uh, you know, occasional posters and um, advertisements for gigs that I played and stuff like that. And, uh, uh, and plus, see, my father is a literature professor. I have impeccable um, grammar, grammar. Yeah, spelling good, but I. Oh man, I, I wish I had that grammar. I need that grammar, man. I was able to learn um, when I needed to be sure to check my spelling because mm -hmm. my spelling has never been that strong. Yeah, there was no early. spell check then, right? There was no spell check. You couldn't spell. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. So I had to know when to 
consult a dictionary, and that was really the main thing. But there were there were basic uh, instructional uh, pieces available on to uh, on how to do standard um, proofreading marks and stuff like that. And before I left, the, during part of what I did to make a living in Southern California after I left school. I started trying to make a living as a as a singer songwriter. I was also editing textbook material and uh, you know various kinds of uh, stuff for a uh, division of the McMillan Company called the Glencoe Press, mm. and actually functioned as a uh, copy editor and proofreader wow. for, uh, for the Glencoe Press. And that had a lot to do with my ability to keep body and soul together while I was learning how to function as a performing musician in that <clears throat> context. That, that's, well, I mean, that's good, though. So you, that all that pressure was removed. I'm curious about the local venues aside from Uncle Sam's, that you and, and Mitch really started to cook the groove at around there? Well, let's see. That was Uncle Sam's Bar and Grill in Sebastopol. There was a, a place on the beach at the mouth of the uh, Wahala River, Wahala. There was a town of Mendocino that had a club in it. There was a uh, a church in San Diego where they had an auditorium that uh, was used for used by sm uh, small bands in that area. And I uh, in the town of Carmichael, um, and it was called uh, Kairos. Kairos. I played there with a number of different bands. And uh, I'm just kind of... Uh, yeah, no, this is... Wait, I mean, that. where is... Car, is that in Northern California, Carmichael? Where is that? Uh, it's in, it's um, east of Sacramento on Highway 50. Unbelievable. It's a, it's the southern route south of Interstate 80 that goes across the Sierra. Interstate 80 and Highway 50 both um, run from go from um, Sacramento uh, on east uh, across the Sierra at uh, Interstate 80's farther north. Were you able to? Were you, I wait for it to go through Donner Pass. Yeah, no, I just I just went on that with my daughters over Christmas. It was unbelievably glorious. Uh, the snow was just packed through Donner Pass, so I know exactly where you're talking about. I just wonder about, were you guys able to <clears throat> do any kind of regional touring, um, or were they kind of one-off gigs? Because, like, you know, your job... Uh, were you able to take a, a couple weeks off from your gig, or were you guys basically? I wasn't. I was not. I was not employed. Generally speaking, I was not employed mm. on on a nine to five uh, right basis. 
I did spend 10 years working for a uh, corporation called um, Commerce Clearing House. And I'm looking here at a... Um, at my uh, chronology, but um, how? Can, tell me this: uh, what, yeah. what? What was the? Why? When did you decide? What was the spark to start Frontier? Um, would you repeat that question? Yeah. I, what was the, the the spark or the catalyst for the band Frontier? Well. While Mitch and I were working, backing Mark, as a, basically as a trio with an occasional addition of a drummer, um, we began to, uh, Mitch and I uh, began to add songs of our own creation or arrangements of our own creation to Mark's um repertoire of his own songs and um, we began to sort of it became uh, Spolster, Greenhill and Smith <laughs> the sickest trio then, ever man and then um, incidentally at some point in there well then it became then Mark decided that he just got tired he didn't like rehearsing that much and he got tired of working on our, you know, mm. uh, functioning as a part of arrangements of our own material. And he decided he didn't want to tour anymore. He got married. He uh, found religion and uh, started attending church on a regular basis with the woman who was very Christian-oriented. Mm -hmm. And he retired from the road. Mm. I think he intended to see whether he couldn't become kind of a, a religious act and, and work in that in that context that he just announced that he was tired of rehearsing and doing that stuff and he wanted to branch off on his own. So Mitch and I decided we were going to continue to do whatever we figure out what we could do on our own and um, or in combination with uh, Pookie, the drummer. <laughs> and uh, we just kind of went on in that direction. Um, mostly working small local gigs and sometimes further north up the coast or further south. But then ultimately, once Mark kind of moved off in a different direction, you guys were like, well, let's just, you know, you started calling yourself the Frontier. We called ourselves Spolster, Greenhill, and Smith. And then once, uh, then at some point, uh, actually the, the drummer, uh, Pookie, encountered a um, piece of information that there, the uh, border guard between India and Pakistan that um, was responsible for approving 
the passage of marijuana back and forth across the border <laughs> between those two countries was called the Frontier Constabulary, and we adopted that as the name for the band. <laughs> and then, <laughs> That's uh, so great, man. Explaining to people what the word constabulary meant and where the name came from became too much of a chore. What was and I'm sorry, what was the what was the word? Just call it the frontier. What was the word? Constabulary. You constabulary. know constable? Sure. A constable is a kind of a police person, a police sure. functionary. So the frontier constabulary was responsible for inspecting and approving the passage of anything across the oh, border between God. India and Pakistan. and uh, A lot of hash or marijuana, opium. Oh, right. yeah, I get it. I'm, that is so funny, man. You... Can you just... Um, man, can you just talk about... Um, <clears throat> basically, like, uh, if you believe that um, music was is your purpose in life, I mean, it seems like you can do many different things, but I just wonder how, you know, looking back on it now with all these press clippings, if you, you know, when you discovered it was your purpose in life. Well, I don't think of music as being my purpose in life. Mm. It's one of the things I do. It's one of the things that matters to me the most, but I haven't played a gig in quite a while because I, I never really wanted to devote my whole existence to um, hmm. nothing but a uh, an act and to trying to... I don't think of myself as, as a kind of talent that... I, I, I don't have much glamour. I don't... Uh, Make the ladies swoon. Uh, I'm <laughs> yeah. not a really fancy picker, and um, you're pretty good. I just kind of comp I, I I contribute what I can, what I feel like doing, and I try and do what I do as well as I can. But um, I'm I'm actually not playing very much anymore because there aren't very many gigs that I'm interested in doing. I I'm a I'm good at playing small clubs and um, just kind of being a guy on stage playing an instrument or two and singing parts. And and I, I like to, uh, whereas I was once a solo singer-songwriter, um, I haven't actually finished a song for quite some time. I don't. I don't write very much anymore, and uh, I haven't played a gig in quite a while. No, and I get that. You know what? So it feels a little bit empty now. Um, but it, it, can you talk about the part of your life, the part of your existence that it does consume, and ultimately, um, I guess the, the 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 last question in set two I want to ask you is like in the in the moments when you guys were really cooking did you recognize that you were merely a, a conduit for information coming through you from somewhere from the heavens uh because what happens with a lot of musicians who devote their entire lives to music 
Um, some of them get very bitter and resentful later in life when the phone stops ringing so much because they completely believed that they were responsible for what was coming out of their apparatus. I don't care if it was a saxophone, guitar, pedal steel, whatever. When in fact, they're only partially responsible for it. That you're merely a vessel for the information. Can you talk about your recognition of that? Well, for one thing, I've never thought of myself as a conduit for information. Well, let me ask you a question. When Did you ever have an experience where you got off the stage and people said, how did you do that? And you said, I have no idea. Um, no. <laughs> I, I just, that, you know what it is? Like the, it's like that Socratic, it's that Socratic line. I know, I know, I know nothing. It's just being humble about, about. I can, uh, yeah. I can usually, um, I, um, this question, I, the, the situation just doesn't arise. I I'm love it, doing... man. No, I love your honesty, man. I really love your honesty about it. I, I don't feel like I'm doing anything that I, I expect to mystify people with. Well, no, all. I'm talking about leaving the head of the tune and stretching out for a jam, and, you know, next thing you know, everyone's having a ball, and, you don't, you know, 10 minutes has gone by. You know, it's like where you're just riffing, you know, you're just, you know, the, you know, it's coming through you. I mean, did you guys ever, was it always pretty compartmentalized, three, four minute tunes, or did you ever just stretch out? Uh, no, we usually played songs. I, um, you know, I grew up um, learning songs from Woody Guthrie and Cisco Houston and Burl Ives sure. and uh, Josh White and... Uh, then other people that I actually knew, um, and uh, writing at some point, sort of writing songs occasionally. Uh, but I never thought of myself as being a unique conduit uh, for any particular type of music or any particular type of song. I just did what I felt like doing, and that uh, particularly things that. Um, that appealed to the people that I was able to reach. Um, I, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm not a, uh, you know, <laughs> what can I say? I don't have a mission. Totally. A, no, absolutely. No, and, 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 and yeah. I'm, uh, I'm a decent songwriter or have, have produced some decent songs. It's been quite a while since I finished one. Um, and there are some things that um, I've written that are popular. Like uh, one time I was in an airport, um, I think it was um, at O'Hare in Chicago, and I happened to recognize that the guy sitting across the aisle from me in the waiting room was Steve Goodman, and I wow. approached him and said, uh, I want to say that uh, I really uh, want to take this opportunity to tell you that I think City of New Orleans is a great song, and uh, you've made an important contribution to my appreciation mm. of the uh, of of the music and he says 
Oh, you're Maine Smith. And he quoted me the chorus of my quote hit, which uh, is called I Like It. I got a million dollar voice and a two bit brain. They may not put me in the Hall of Fame, but I got a reputation and a well known name, man. I like it. And of course, that was a kick. <laughs> he, oh, that's that's that. the that is so great, man. That that was a pinnacle experience. At the time, it was just something that happened. But uh, looking it, back, it it's mind blowing. Oh. I did admire. Uh, City of New Orleans a lot. I think it's a great song. And I never learned it. <laughs> I never performed it. Uh, I have nothing against doing so. It's, no, but the it, point is that you were paying deference to him and your contributions have also had a huge impact on many, many folk and rock and singer-songwriters as well, which... Um, I think it's a perfect place to put a button in this for set two. We'll definitely do a set three in the next week or so, okay? Okay, I don't know how much you, more you can squeeze out of me. Well, we're going to squeeze. We're gonna, no, I mean, I'm, willing, yeah, I'm I, willing to respond to questions the best I can. Well, That's all I've been doing, really. Well, I mean, yeah, it's this is important stuff. And Storm Coming was a major spiritual acquisition for me in my life and it's given me a sort of a portal into a whole new vector of music that i didn't even know existed so it's it's uh you know if you're up for it i'd love to do another maybe another half hour okay all right much love to you me yeah no set up the time and uh take it from there much love Maine. i'll get this copy to you and and we'll be in touch man okay Jake. all right be cool man take care all right